The scripture reading is taken from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the tomb had been re- that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in, in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look at the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell him, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had seen, said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kimberly. You read that beautifully. That was great. Christmas and Easter are the two great pillars on which Christianity is built. Christmas, where we celebrate Jesus Christ's birth, his entry into our world as a human child, the miracle that an infinite, omnipotent God becomes a finite, vulnerable, helpless child. Easter is where we celebrate that child's triumph over death. Put to death on the cross, he goes to the grave, and triumphantly he's resurrected. A new life, a new life with God and from God. And that's the harder of the two pillars. Everybody loves Christmas. In fact, Christmas has taken over the world. What's not to love about babies, presents, Christmas trees, carols? But an empty tomb, that's serious business. Christmas is a gift, but resurrection, triumph over death, well, that changes everything, and that is actually a tougher call. That's the one that people have resisted believing in. That's the one that everyone challenges, yet it dominates all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This morning, we're looking at John and seeing what he had to say about it. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Mary Magdalene, 
There are many Marys in the New Testament, but Mary Magdalene is the one who's mentioned most, especially in the resurrection stories. She's always named first. She's there in all the accounts. What do we know about her? Well, although the Bible does not explicitly state it, a very early tradition of the church identifies Mary as the sinful prostitute, it's in Luke 7, who anointed Jesus with perfume and washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. And immediately after that um, beautiful, extraordinary story, Mary Magdalene is introduced as the woman that Jesus drew, uh, drove seven demons out of, which would account for her gratitude. We get a composite in all the Gospels. She was unmarried. She's named Magdalena because that is the town which she came from. So she did not have a husband. She did not have her husband's name. She lived on the shores of Galilee where she met Jesus. If she had been married, she would have had an ordinary life. But as a prostitute, she would have been an outcast. At that time and place, if you weren't married, you had very few options. To be uh, a widower or to be a single woman meant that you really didn't have anything at all. You didn't have a name. You didn't have property. You didn't have any kind of status. Verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Simon Peter, Peter uh, is the word for rock, Petra. Peter is the rock on which Christ builds his church. And yet notice he's not there first. The one who Jesus loved is the apostle John, the writer of the Gospel of John. And actually, if you read that um, Gospel, it was the first Gospel that I read as I was becoming a Christian. It is the most intimate of the Gospels. Clearly, John spent a lot of time with Jesus. He records Jesus' personal prayers, personal thoughts. He's the one that understands Jesus' purpose best of all. They have taken the Lord. They she thinks the enemies, perhaps. She doesn't know what has happened. All she sees is an empty tomb. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other di disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So those are the basic facts of Easter. Jesus was crucified. He was put in a tomb, dead, wrapped up in linens. He would have been packed with spices. On the third day, the tomb was found empty. 
what had happened? How do we interpret it? What do you think? When I was at seminary, um, an old pastor there told me, he said, Tony, as a preacher, you'll have to be creative. You'll have to keep the interest of your congregation. You'll have to read a lot of books. You'll have to work hard. Except at weddings, funerals, and Easter. There you don't. Because there you can assume that there are many non-Christians. They're there for other reasons. And so just give them the facts. Don't work too hard. Just keep it simple. Tell them the basic facts and challenge them to believe or disbelieve. So that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> now, it used to be that I would use scripture to show how Christ had predicted what was going to happen and the significance, the theology of what happened in his, on the cross and in the resurrection. But I've noticed more and more in our current culture, people doubt even the reality of Jesus as a historical person. I've been watching this week a number of debates, and it's so often uh, someone will just throw in the, the thought as a as sort of an afterthought, if he existed at all. I mean, maybe this story is just an invention. Maybe Jesus Christ doesn't exist, didn't exist. He was invented by Christians. There's no record of him outside the Bible. It's all just written down invention 2,000 years ago. So did he exist? Well, actually, I did not realize this, but there is quite a bit of evidence outside the Bible that Jesus really did exist, that you have to take him seriously in history. In 64 AD, so this is after Jesus' death and resurrection, there was a devastating fire in Rome. Uh, many people, it was started by Nero, because Nero had been trying to get the Senate to give him the money to rebuild Rome, and they didn't want to spend the money. So he burned it down. You probably heard the expression, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. And the Senate was annoyed by this, and they challenged him. And so Nero said, it's those Christians. Those crazy Christians who've started showing up everywhere, they did it. It's their fault. It was actually a persecution against them. One of the senators of Rome, Tacitus, he was a historian. He wrote accounts of what happened in Rome. He's the basic source for everything that we know about Rome and, and, and Julius Caesar and all the intrigues of Rome. And he wrote this. He's talking about this fire. Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. The abomination was the fact that it was believed that Christians were cannibals because they celebrated the Lord's Supper, and it was assumed that they really did eat flesh and drink blood. Um, and the superstition was the fact that Jesus rose from the dead that was challenging the authority of Rome because it suggested that the punishment of 
Rome, the cross, the most terrible punishment, was not the final word, and there was a threat to Roman authority. All the governors of Rome had to deal with these Christians because they stopped popping up all over the Roman Empire. And later, uh, Governor Pliny the Younger, this is a uh, hundred years later, writes a letter to the Emperor Trajan asking how he's meant to deal with these crazy Christians. And he writes this in his letter. They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. After which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind, not flesh and blood. <laughs> the most famous account, though, is from... A Jewish historian, Josephus, most of what we know about what went, on, what went on outside of Rome and in the early Roman Empire, and particularly among the Jewish population, is from this Jewish historian, Josephus. And his word and his account is considered gospel. It is used by historians in learning and thinking about what was happening back then, except for one part. I'm going to read to you the one part that is challenged continuously. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ, the Messiah. When, when Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affections for him. On the third day he appeared, restored to life. And the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. The only reason that that is controversial when the rest of his accounts of the other um, parts of Jewish history is that it so closely affirms Christian belief. That's the sole reason that this is controversial. Because it so accurately reflects what the Gospels, the other Jewish writers, wrote about Jesus. There really was a historical person called Jesus, and he caused a fuss. And we see from out these accounts outside the Bible that he was considered the Messiah, that he was put to death, that on the third day he rose again. These are facts that were acknowledged by multiple sources and, of course, all four accounts that we have in the Bible. The only reason that you would doubt these facts, and, by the way, there are more uh, supporting evidence for Jesus' resurrection, his death and resurrection, than any other facts that we have back in those times. The only reason to doubt it is because it's so challenging. If it is true... It changes everything. And that is the main reason that people resist. Not because there's any doubt, but for people are trying to wriggle off the hook of belief. Because once you start believing this stuff, it's going to change your life. It's going to change everything. K. 
can you trust the Bible? So, okay, we can admit, perhaps, that Jesus was a real person, but was he, as the Bible says, the Son of God? Can you trust the biblical accounts? One theme that I picked up listening to debates about this, and every, every challenge to the Bible mentions this, is the fact that the Bible, the four gospel accounts, the places where we get most of our information about the resurrection, they are slightly different. There's not one account. There are four. And they have slight differences between them. And this is given as evidence that it can't possibly be true. If it was true, they would all say the same thing. Exactly. And yet they don't, therefore they can't be true. Well, is that correct? There's a wonderful book by uh, an ex-policeman, Richard Balkman, called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Also, N.T. Wright wrote a book about it, the resurrection of the Son of God. And both of them point out that whenever there is uh, a criminal case, whenever the police are trying to decide what really happened, the first thing they do is they separate the witnesses. And then they take written accounts from each witness and they compare them. If they are exactly the same, they know there is a conspiracy. If they are different, they know that those people were looking at the same event, events, but from their different perspectives, with their different prejudices and habits of mind, with their different understandings of what they were looking at. Police look for diversity of perspective as a sign of truth. Because, as you know, people are strange. People see different things. There's a famous example on YouTube, which I watch, where they, they ask a bunch of students to watch a, a basketball game. And they're watching this, and then they ask questions afterwards. What they don't tell them is that the gorilla is going to show up. He's going to run onto the court. He's going to run around a bit. He's then going to run off. And it's amazing how few of the students even notice there's a gorilla. Because they're looking at the teams. They're looking at who's scoring. They're looking at the uniforms. Their minds are not prepped to see what is unexpected, and so they don't see it. Well, what do you think human minds are going to make of angels and resurrection? They are going to be amazed, astonished. They're going to see and respond to different parts of that astonishment in different ways. And it is clear from the Gospels that the ones who wrote them down, the ones who recorded these witnesses, were more interested and truth and veracity of witness than they were about uniformity and consistency. Read them. See what you think. They read very much like shocking eyewitness accounts after some extraordinary event. There's another thing that people say. It was a conspiracy. They did get together, these early Christians. Their, their Lord died, and rather than admit that, they came up with this conspiracy to say that he was the Son of God, that he triumphed over death as a way of amassing power and significance, notoriety, as a way of consolidating their group when it threatened to disperse. 
Maybe there are other reasons that that tomb was empty. Chuck Colson wrote a great book on this. Um, Chuck Colson, you probably know his name. He was one of the Watergate conspirators. He was sent to jail for Watergate, and in jail he became a Christian. In fact, he started a wonderful uh, ministry to prisoners um, based on his experiences in jail. And he wrote a book about conspiracy. After all, he knew a little bit about it. And he says, when you think about it, who had a stake in the absence of Christ? Could the Romans have taken Jesus' body? Well, the fact is, immediately after Jesus' resurrection, Christianity began as a subset of Judaism, the tribe that uh, Josephus talks about. It caused division. It caused riots. It caused stonings. It caused all kinds of problems in Jerusalem for the Romans. If they had taken the body, they had could have produced that body at any point and completely obliterated Christianity. If they had it, they could have produced it. The same with the religious authorities of Jerusalem. The best way to take the wind out of the sails of these new Christians would have been to uh, produce the body. Well, maybe the apostles stole the body. And this was where I think Chuck Colson is most useful. He points out that the only good reason to be in a conspiracy is to benefit from the conspiracy. What happened to the early Christians? They were persecuted. They were crucified. They were fed to the lions. They were driven out of Jerusalem. It was not a good thing to be a Christian in the early days. There was no power. There was no prestige. They were a hunted class of outcasts from Judaism. There is no point, Colson says, in maintaining a conspiracy if it causes you to suffer. You might as well just come clean and live a quiet life. The best and most reasonable explanation for that empty tomb is the Christian explanation. Jesus stood up, that stone was rolled away, and he strode out into the world a resurrected man. If you look at all the evidence, it's not conclusive, by the way. You can't say with absolute certainty what happened back then. But a reasonable and sober-minded look at the evidence suggests that the Christian answer is the best one. And the main reason people don't look at it fairly is because the implications are so terrifying. If death is not the final answer, then all the power in the world, all the armies of the world, are not as powerful as they think. It is a threat to every rich and powerful person, every rich and powerful nation, every tyrant, everyone who threatens. Because it says there is a power greater than yours. And it says to ordinary people, you are not your own. You have a creator. Your life comes to you from God. And therefore, he has a claim on you. And therefore, you have a purpose. And therefore, you should be about his business in the world. It's a challenge. 
it challenges our autonomy. It challenges our sense um, of personal uh, independent worth. It challenges our power. It challenges the institutions of the world. But I actually think there is a better reason to believe the story. And I'm going to end by talking about that. Some of you have heard this before. Um, it's Mary. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Why did she do that? All the other apostles ran away. In fact, we know they scattered, terrified. But Mary didn't leave. Mary stayed at that empty tomb. Why did she do that? Because she had nowhere else to go. She'd followed Jesus for three years. She was a social outcast. She didn't have a family. She didn't have any wealth. She had nothing, no name, no nothing, apart from her memory of the Jesus who had saved her, who paid attention to her, who gave her a purpose and a meaning. And now he died, and she'd lost everything. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. If you read the Bible, you know that angels don't show up too often. In the 5,000 or so years covered by the Bible, they only show up a few times. And they always show up at important points to make sure human beings don't misinterpret what's happening. They are sent by God to interpret events for humans so that there's no misunderstanding. And it tells us that this was a key moment. Angels mean pay attention. Angels mean this is important. They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. She's been with Jesus for three years, and she still doesn't understand what's happened. He talked about this. But she is not, perhaps at this point, thinking logically. For her, she has lost everything. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not recognize it was Jesus. Now, this is common. If you, if you read the accounts, pretty much nobody recognizes Jesus the first time they see him. Why would that be? Because he's been resurrected. His body has been made perfect. That means there would be no sign or mark of disease or blemish. He'd been walking around for three years under that hot sun in Galilee. Now... Who knows? He must have looked with, with perfect skin like a young man, perhaps. We don't really know. But he was renewed. He was not, he was the same person, but he didn't look the same. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. She still doesn't get it. She is pure emotion at this point. Now, at this point, I'd like you to just pause and think about this story. Why is this story of Mary Magdalene in the Bible? It's in all the Gospels. 
Why is she always first? Why would this be here? This is the central core of Christian witness. Jesus is risen. The most important human witness in history. And this witness is a woman. Now, to modern people with modern sensibilities, that might not seem so remarkable. The fact just slips by. But consider this. At that time and place, like most places in the world, women were not considered to have equal value or dignity with men. Women were the property of their fathers and became the property of their husbands on marriage. Women, in that time and place, could not inherit land that went to the sons. They could not make legally binding contracts because their word was not considered binding. In fact, their word was not considered reliable enough to be valid testimony in court. The witness of a woman was not valid evidence in a court case. Except for noble women, most women back then had the same status as children and slaves. And so here we have a woman as the first witness and as a woman, her witness is completely useless. If you are trying to convince the world that this really happened, why would you put a woman in the story? Her testimony would not be reliable and would be an excuse. In fact, the first excuse to just completely disregard the whole incredible resurrection story. It's just a tale from women. Why is this story then in the Bible? The most plausible explanation I would suggest to you is that Mary really was there. This is what really happened. And the apostles who recorded these stories believed that recording the facts was more important than making the story credible. They wanted to share their witness. And what happened was Mary was there first. Now think about it. The status of women back then was not controversial. There was no women's rights movement. It was just the way things are. Nobody was agitating for women to have equal value. Who, in that time and place, could value Mary as a witness? A woman. At a time where women were not considered valuable and their testimony was worthless. Who is bigger than any culture or society's prejudice at that time. Can you think of anybody? Who could defy all human conventions and act purely out of love and personal regard back then? There's only one person. Somebody who is outside of culture and outside of human prejudices and, and society. Someone who created all people and loves them equally, considers everyone precious, male and female. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. She must have jumped on him. 
do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. What is the gospel? I would suggest to you it's right here. I'm going to cry. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) Completely alienated. Alienated from her family. She would have been an outcast. Alienated from her society. Alienated from herself. She was mad. She had demons cast out of her. No name. No property. No respect. Nothing. Apart from Jesus. And he gives her everything. A name, gosh, I'm sorry, an identity, worth, forgiveness of all the things that she's done, a new future, a new hope, a new life. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. He is risen. And that is all it took for her. Don't believe because of the evidence. I think the evidence is great, by the way. Don't believe because you read the Bible and it seems convincing. Read and believe because of the personality that you encounter. If you read the Gospels, you will encounter the greatest personality there's ever been. He's in every page. And he will transform your life. And it does not matter what this world says about you. If he's on your side, if he is truly risen, you've got a future. You've got a name. You've got a purpose. That is the Christian gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. There are so many things in the world that gives us pause, that fills us with doubt, that call us away from you. But Lord, you are love. You are the only one who can truly love us. You are our savior. You are the only one who can save us from ourselves in this broken world. And Lord, you are our hero who faced death, the great enemy that we could not face. Lord, help us believe. Help us to follow transform our lives. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.